All right, all right, here we go. Grab a seat. This is, uh, this is really a great day in the church here, but uh, you know, it's kind of in betwixt and in between. It's a day, it's always a bit bittersweet, and yet uh, a day of rejoicing. So it's nice to sing some good hymns, and Jonathan did a great job. Thank you for all of that. All right, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, for the triumph of Christ in the lives of your saints. Receive the prayers we offer this day and help us to run our course with faith that we may swiftly come to your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now you noticed, uh, well, here's, here's the one thing, or there are a couple things. One is, uh, this is the second week in a row I've been here, so that's a change of pace. Uh, like I said last time, I never was allowed, so it's good they finally let me come. Um, and you also noticed during the service that we sang uh, the second verse of the closing hymn. If you still have your bulletin, pop that open. Anyone know who we're singing to here? <laughs> Gigi has her hand up, so we'll skip. Anyone else know who's singing here? Who we're singing to here? Well, that's the question. The closing hymn from today, second stanza, to whom are we singing? Just listen. O higher than the cherubim, more glorious than the seraphim, angels, lead their praises. This is the one who's supposed to lead praises. Alleluia. This gives it away then. Thou bearer of the eternal word. Think John 1, capital W there. Most gracious, magnify the Lord. Alleluia, 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 alleluia. To whom are we singing? That's right. Okay, so it's very fitting then that we go back to Luke chapter 1. Pop open there, would you? You should. Does everyone have a handout? If not, Burkholz has some in the back. Okay, Luke chapter one. Let's open up there. Luke chapter one, verse. Go to verse twenty-six. And also, then look at your handout. You remember. Um, let's just look at point number one on the handout. We'll review just a bit before we get going, since we did have a week off. Listen to, the, listen to the Madeline Lengo quote one more time. To paint a picture, or to write a story, or to compose a song, is an incarnational activity. The artist is a servant who is willing to be a birth giver. In a very real sense, the artist should be like Mary, who when the angel told her that she was to bear the Messiah, was obedient. And there you remember, obedience is, is a gospel word. It's not up to Mary to say yes or no per se. She has no reason but to say yes. She can't help. So the angel says, you're going to do this. And she says, yes, wouldn't that be fun? Amen, let it be so. So she was obedient to the command. I believe that each work of art, whether it is a work of great genius or something very small, comes to the artist and says, here I am, enflesh me, give birth to me. So this work of great genius, or something very, uh, very insignificant, comes from outside. It's an alien artwork. It's an alien piece of art that comes to the artist and says, "Enflesh me, give birth to me. So we've got that. We also know from the past few weeks that beauty is all over the place. Prayers on Wednesdays, uh, Psalm 90, let the beauty of our God be upon us. It's an absolution. Live toward the work and the beauty he would fulfill in you for himself and for others. And then those great lines go, you are free. Remember, if you're bound, you can't, uh, you, 
You can't live the life he has called you to live if you're bound up. So he sends you out free, absolved, no more sins, never to remember them again, and says, now live toward the work and beauty he would fulfill in you for himself and for others. It's in pastoral guidance. And I try to be very kind when I say this to the vicars and, uh, well, other folks. It's the viva vox. It's the living voice. So don't kill it. It's the living voice. So don't kill it. You have to imagine. I think last time I was here, we used, uh, I used the Sermon on the Mount as an example. You have to imagine Jesus in Matthew 5. He probably didn't stand up and say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to say that, he, to, to say that you can just say it and it works is actually an affront to the incarnation. Jesus became man. He took on flesh, just like you, just like me. He had a voice. He was able to speak in a certain way. And there's actually a bit of rhetoric and persuasion involved in what he tries to say. So there's beauty in that. If Jesus does it, it's beautiful. Finally, then, continuing education, keeping alive the rumor, which is what we are trying to do here. So you remember, beauty is objective. It's not a matter of taste. And no one laughed when I said it's not a Monet, because... I suppose, you know, I'm one of the few that has heard that joke. It's not a Monet, which, as you know, is good from far, but far from good. It's not a matter of taste. It's not about you. Beauty is sacramental. It engages the entire person. Think five senses. Think school chapel. So, in a sense, it is about you. And beauty is divine. It begins with God. Remember Aquinas, God is beauty. And when you begin with God, you can't go wrong. So... It's not about you, but it is about you because it's first about the Lord. So flip over. Next page then. This is all stuff we covered last time, but it's good to pick back up and make sure we know where we're at. So now what? Pastor Bruzik did a great job of laying out beauty for us. We looked at an icon. How then is beauty applied? And not just applied like Peter, James, and John on the bottom of the hill, or not just applied like Moses seeing the burning bush, but beauty applied in such a way that it actually takes up residence in your flesh. So now what? Beauty applied objectively, sacramentally, divinely, and internally, or maybe a Lutheran way of saying it, delivered to you to take up residence in your body. Okay? So then Luke one twenty-eight. Everyone there? Everyone open? The Joy Group, remember, says, we don't read, you read. So, I will read. Chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And here you see um, what St. Luke does a brilliant job, job at is he tries to put all of salvation history in the context of world history. He's not making this stuff up. Okay, all of this stuff happens. So especially then when you get to Luke chapter 2 in the birth narrative, in those days, what's the first thing he says? Caesar Augustus issued a decree. So in the midst of world history, he says, whoa, someone invaded our cosmos, invaded our world, invaded our history, and his name is Jesus. Verse 28 then. This is the big setup. And he came and said to her, Greetings, Kyrie in the Greek, Rejoice, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And you remember we drew up here last week that use of the word Kyrie from the Old Testament to Mary, and now we'll get to us hopefully this week. 
So here's the Kyrie and Zechariah 9.9. And Zephaniah, what is it in Zephaniah? 3 something? 3.14. Zephaniah 3.14. You remember, to whom does he address... Uh, to whom does the Lord address with the word Kyrie in Zechariah 9.9 and Zephaniah 3.14? Do you remember that? The daughter of, daughter of Zion, right? So he says to the daughter of Zion, Kyrie, which is rejoice in the imperative. And the daughter of Zion is a picture of Israel, who is a picture of the church. Okay? And now with Mary here, he uses the same greeting, Kyrie, rejoice. And so Mary then becomes a picture, as we said last week, of Israel in one, because from her will come the Messiah, and therefore a picture of the church. So it is completely fitting and appropriate, it's meet, right, and salutary, to say, Holy Mother the Church. The Church is a mother in a very real sense in that she gives birth to Christians here at the font. Okay? So, Kyrie rejoice, Israel, Church, in the Old Testament, daughter of Zion. Then Mary rejoice, Israel in one, from her will come the Messiah. She then is a picture of the Church. Now, uh, you know, last week, or two weeks ago, you know, I was, I was a little rude to Burkholz, so I had to repent of all that. You can laugh, that was funny. Um, at least it was supposed to be funny, maybe you didn't think it was funny. But I think I, used the, I, think I spoke the name Burkholz, you know, 15 or 16 times in the midst of that Bible study. And I actually, I re-listened to it to just make sure the accusations were accurate, and they were. Um, so I had to repent of all that. I told him I was sorry. It was actually my mother-in-law who was here who said, she said to Burkholz, do you guys always talk like that? And Burkle's response, usually in private. <laughs> so, I'm very sorry, Mark. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Um, but he brought up a very good point yesterday. We were talking about this text again, because, you know, we, just, we don't completely see eye to eye on this, and that's fine. Um, but one point he did make, which was very good, is, you notice he uses, I've used the word Kyrie here over and over, which is a Greek word. You remember the Old Testament was translated into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint. Sometimes you see it as LXX, the 70, right? The Septuagint. And, and Mark's point, which was very, very helpful, was, you know, St. Luke is heavily reliant upon the Septuagint. That's, that's where he gets a lot of his data, is from the Old Testament translated into Greek. So although Mary may not have seen this connection, which is, I think, what someone said, did Mary completely get this? Well... I tend to think maybe she did because she knew her Bible, but it's true maybe she didn't read the Septuagint. Even if Mary didn't get it, maybe this is what St. Luke intends. So Mary may not get it, but St. Luke, by the use of the term, and having been heavily, having heavily relied upon the Septuagint, maybe this is what he intends. To see the connection between daughter of Zion, Israel and church, Mary, Israel in one, a picture of the church. Okay? So now we're in this three-part greeting to the Virgin Mary. First is, greetings, rejoice, lines herself up with Israel. O favored one, or as the Greek says, one full of grace. And you remember that's the same word, charis, grace, or eucharist, eucharistia. 
It's in the passive. How has the grace been shown? It's been delivered by the Lord himself. So Mary is not full of grace of her own accord. She's full of grace because the Lord has gotten at her. And you should begin to see, even now, how all of this then lines up with the picture of the baptized Christian. You're no different than Mary. And that's the point of all of this. And that's why, I think I said this last week, to bang on Mary is really to bang on yourself as a baptized Christian. What goes for Mary goes for you. Okay? Questions? Uh, I th- well, <laughs> she's the mother of the church, yes. She also is a picture of the church from the Kyrie and from the use of the, in the Old Testament of the daughter of Zion. Um, there, there, are a bunch of, there are a bunch of titles that she has, which really aren't wrong. Mother of the church, the church, or picture of the church, queen of heaven, Revelation 12.1, right? There's a woman in heaven clothed with the sun, 12 stars around her head, giving birth to whom? To Christians from the womb of the church. So yes, that, that's, that's, that's an appropriate title for Mary. That would be an appropriate title for Mary. Okay, look at, your, look at point four on your sheets, all right? Greetings, rejoice, O favored one, one full of grace. It's in the passive. The same grace that filled the temple in Psalm 27. You see there, his revelation, full of grace, which is there visible to the eye of the Spirit. So he who has ears to hear and he who has eyes to see, let him see that Mary is the one who has been graced by the Holy Spirit. And then the third part of the greeting, this is almost the best part, the Lord is with you. And that's why it is utterly imperative that we begin prayers and we begin, this is why pastors, pastors give blessings because they speak on behalf of the Lord. The Lord be with you. That doesn't just, that's not like, hey, I hope he comes and I hope everything works out for you. That's a delivery of the presence of Christ. When we say that, the Lord be with you, he actually comes into your ear and takes up residence in your flesh again. The same way he does when the angel says to Mary, the Lord be with you. He's speaking realities here. He's speaking realities. And now the big finish. Luke 1.35, okay? Look there. You know, Mary, uh, just before this, she's been told all this is going to happen. And then she goes through her own bit of catechesis there. She says, well, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And he says, all these things are going to happen. Then verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's it. That is the moment where it happens. Or as it says on the sheet, the big finish. There's been a big setup. Here's what's going to happen. You're a picture of the church. Uh, By the way, you're full of grace because the Lord got at you. By the way, I'm going to speak realities and deliver the presence of the Lord to you. And look at this. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And with the word, the Lord takes up residence in Mary's flesh. So it's conception via her ear. The way to the soul or for Mary, the way to the womb, is through the ear. All the bells should be going off now. That's why the third commandment is not burdensome. What does Luther say? Come to church and gladly hear the word of God and learn from it. That's exactly what Mary does here. She's fulfilling the third commandment in a joyful way. Gladly hear the word of God 
and learn from it. Mary hears the word of God and it takes up residence in her flesh. And this, you remember, is objective. It's not about her. It's not whether Mary says yes or no. It's sacramental. It engages her whole person. Jesus is now, better, God is now one flesh with Mary. It's divine. It's by the Lord's doing. Mary didn't decide this, hence the passive for the grace. And it's internal or it's delivered. Christ takes up residence in Mary's flesh. And for all of that then, number five, for all of that, Mary is called the most blessed woman. You remember from the visitation then, she goes to see her relative Elizabeth, and when she walks in and she, and she begins to speak, John the baptizer jumps in Elizabeth's womb, and Elizabeth then says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's an exegetical chi. Where's Shite? Is he here? He must be on the cruise. Is he, Shite on the cruise? You know, they didn't ask a pastor to go this year. Did they ever ask you to go on the cruise? I think you should go. Can I still make it? I could probably catch up with them. Little helicopter drop. They would love to see me, believe me. If I got dropped off by a helicopter, the joy group would, well, they wouldn't be too happy. Um, <laughs> Yes, that's right. Okay. Uh, but it's an ep-exegetical chi, or an ep-exegetical and, or the second phrase explains the first. So it should read like this. Blessed are you among women, that is to say, blessed is the fruit of your womb. What makes Mary blessed is the blessed fruit in her womb. But we also know that God is beauty. Beautiful are you among women. And beauty is the fruit of your womb. Or, beautiful are you among women, that is to say, beauty is the fruit of your womb. What makes Mary extraordinarily beautiful is the objective, sacramental, divine, internal, delivered reality that comes when Christ takes up residence in her flesh. How? Through the words spoken into her ear. So here's what you have to know. If you're going to bang on Mary, you've got to bang on Jesus first. Because Christ does the beautifying, and Jesus is always the one-off, but Mary is the one-off's mother. When the Lord was doing the choosing, who did he choose? He chose Mary. So she is not just, the, uh, you know, she's not just a vessel. She is that, but she's more. She's a vessel to whom the Lord has said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And now, as we say, beautiful are you among women, and beauty is the fruit of your womb. So with beauty applied, then, here's what Lutherans have to say. Mary is the mother of God. She is the blessed virgin Mary. She is the most blessed virgin, and this is, I think, the best. Even though she is worthy of highest honors... Or higher than the cherubim, more glorious than the seraphim. She does not want to be put on the same level as Christ. Now you notice, who doesn't want to be put on the same level as Christ? Mary doesn't. It's not that Jesus doesn't want that. Mary doesn't want that. But to have her example considered and followed. So then, my favorite TV show, EWTN, actually gets it right. And this is the story that we kind of ended with last week, where the young man, this came in second place on The Apprentice, stands up on the show Life on the Rock and says, in a very articulate, uh, you know, uh, short, sweet sentences, says, 
Mary is the most beautiful of all women because she bears beauty in her body. Mary is the most beautiful of all women because she bears beauty in her body. And by the way, my own mother died when I was 14, so I looked to Mary to be my mother. And if you need a mother, look to Mary. If you need to to know how to treat your mother, look to Mary. If you need to know how to treat women, look to Mary. If you need to know how to be a faithful spouse to a woman, look to Mary and Joseph. So he got it right. When beauty gets at you and better even gets into you via the incarnate Christ, everything changes. You are no longer the same person that you were before. And here's the point of all of it. You are no different than Mary. Beauty incarnate, Christ himself, has been applied to you via your forehead, your ear, and your mouth. It just happened again this morning if you were here, and if you haven't been here yet, it's about to happen. But beauty incarnate has been applied to you. It has taken up residence in your flesh. So what makes you extraordinarily beautiful, what makes you extraordinarily beautiful is the objective, you didn't choose it, sacramental, engages the whole person, divine, it comes from Christ first, and internal or delivered reality that came when Christ took up residence in your flesh and as he continues to do to this very day. He's just done it. He's done it in multiple ways. I forgive you of all your sins. Boom, into your ear. He preached a sermon. Boom, into your ear. He says the body of Christ. Boom, into your mouth. The blood of Christ. Boom, into your mouth. If you've got babies, we say... I baptize you, boom, onto your forehead. Beauty incarnate continually takes up residence in your flesh. And what that makes you is extraordinarily beautiful. Just think for a moment. Just think how amazing it would be if we could get every 13 and 14-year-old kid, because I'll tell you, it's not just girls. Guys deal more with, well, maybe not more, but just as much with um, how do I look, what am I doing, do I have the right clothes? Just think if our confirmands could really grasp this and say, I have Jesus incarnate who is beauty on my forehead, in my ear, and in my mouth, and that makes me extraordinarily beautiful. Just think about how that would change the world if teenage kids could say, no matter how I look, no matter what clothes I wear, I am extraordinarily beautiful. And it actually, I think it actually takes kids seeing what true beauty is to be able to grasp that. I'll give you another example from EWTN. There was a young girl, about 14 years old, who came on the show and said, uh, they'd just gotten back from this pilgrimage to Lourdes. They wanted to go see a a shrine to the Virgin Mary. But part of that trip was they were going to go work at this, I don't know, some sort of hospital there. And the girl comes on the show and she says, you know, I used to think beauty was what I saw in the magazine, Cosmo Junior or whatever it's called, Cosmo for Girls. I don't know what all the magazines are now. Seventeen, is that still a magazine? Seventeen, whatever. She said, I used to think what was on those covers, that was beauty. And she said, then I went and worked at this hospital and I held a dying person in my arms. And I began to realize 
As 1 Peter says, rejoice in your sufferings insofar as you share in the sufferings in Christ. That that suffering person was so caught up, caught up in the life of Jesus that that is true beauty. And she said, for me, it's changed everything. Magazines, that's not beauty. What I wear, that's not beauty. What is beautiful is what Jesus has done to me at altar, pulpit, and font. Just think how that would change the world if kids could know that. Which is part of the reason, to be quite honest, why the communion age has gotten pushed down. Kids need to know even earlier than ever that they are extraordinarily beautiful because beauty has been applied via forehead, ear, and mouth. Questions? Comments? Okay. Point 10, then. Boy, we're clipping along. We've got 10 minutes left. Okay, point 10. So what's next? To what's next? You remember I told you last week, I don't even know if she... I told you last week, the reason I love my wife is first and foremost because she's baptized. And she's extraordinarily beautiful. She is. But she's extraordinarily beautiful because she's been baptized, absolved, and suppered. That's the reason I love her. And then all the, great other, all the other great things she does. But first and foremost, that's it. She is beautiful because of what Christ has done to her. So what's next then? To love or to be community or to live together joyfully in Holy Mother the Church, big C and little c, Church Catholic, uh, all the saints in heaven and the saints on earth, and small c, St. John Lutheran Church, is really to be engaged in a work of art. Now think Madeline Lengel here. To be written and to write. Every time you step foot in these doors, you come here to be written anew. The world writes new things with you, and you come back in here and say, Jesus, I need to be written anew. To be written and then to write others, to be painted and to paint, to be changed and to change is what, and to change is what we are all about. So when beauty was applied to you at the font and from the pulpit and at the altar, you were actually transformed. You're not the same person as you were when you walked in here. But from that, you enflesh the beauty that's been given to you. That's the Lengel part. A work of art comes to you from outside. I forgive you of all of your sins. A work, a work of art comes from outside. Take, eat, this is my body, and puts himself into you. And then you enflesh beauty itself, and that is simply to be obedient to Jesus and what he has called you to do. To live a life of obedience is simply to enflesh beauty. That's all it is. And then the incarnational activity is when you deliver beauty itself and when someone receives beauty and then you go out and you apply it again. And you just go full circle. That's all the Christian life is. You come in here because you're beautiful and you belong to the beautiful one and yet the world may, the world make, makes things a bit ugly. And you come in here to be beautiful once again and then to go out and to share that same beauty, to deliver beauty itself so that beauty is received and then you can go out and apply it to someone else. That's all beauty is. That's all the Christian life is. It's just being the person who Christ has called you to be. That is it. But it's always best to close with the man who gets it. So number 11. Patrick Henry Reardon, Orthodox priest. Some of you may know the name. From this area, in fact, uh, Cicero maybe. But listen to this. This is, this is amazing. 
There is a sense in which all of the Old Testament history finds its fulfillment in the be it done unto me of a young maiden of Nazareth. When Dante called the Virgin Mary, quote, the fixed goal of the eternal plan, he meant that her yes to God's summons was the Old Testament's final and culminating act of faith, through which God himself assumed a human role in history. She thus represents, this is the key, she thus represents the culmination of God's long providential and prophetic cultivation of a people proper unto himself, intent solely on the doing of his will. She represents God's plan to make for himself a people who only want to do his will. But this is the point of everything now. I've said that three or four times because, you know, it's all the point of everything. But this is really the point. His work and his plan don't stop with Mary. They just don't. Because the same Jesus who was in Mary now lives in you. So his work and his plan continue to this very day in you, in your flesh, in what you do and how you live and what you say and what kind of community this is to be. In an attempt to cultivate a people proper unto himself who are intent on, and now the gospel word, rejoice in the doing of his will. Now listen to one last thing from now on. The liturgy is the celebration by, God, by the people of God of the Christ event. It is the manifestation of what is really taking place in human history. Christ is coming and being born in us. He lives, suffers, dies, and is risen in us. And he sends his spirit to us, thereby bringing us into communion with one another. That is all beauty is about. It's about being put into you, applied forehead, ear, and mouth. And that's what happens at the liturgy. But the liturgy doesn't stop at the altar. It actually just begins at the altar. So you walk from the altar out into the world in an attempt to be the person who Christ has called you to be. And that is an extraordinarily beautiful person whose sole goal in life is to share that beauty with others so that other people don't look at magazines, but they say, I've been baptized, absolved, suppered, preached at, and I am extraordinarily beautiful as well. That will change the world. Any questions or comments? Anything? Like I said last week, no questions is not always the best. Oh, thank you. What do you have? Fiat is um, the let it be. Unto, it's, kind of, it's, it's Mary's yes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think, is misunderstood sometimes. The question is, I think, you know, the heart of the question is, what is Mary's yes all about? It's not like she says, boy, I've got two things to, to choose between. I don't know how this is going to work out, but okay, you forced me. I'll say yes. It's look at this great opportunity you have before your face, and Mary says, there is no possible way I could say no. Yes, let it be unto me according to your will. And even in that, Jesus still does the verbs. It's not Mary. It's the Lord speaking through his angel. Other questions? Comments? Thoughts? Okay, so we don't bang on Mary. Mary's great. She's actually a picture of who you are on this Feast of All Saints. All right, if there's nothing, let's close in the Lord's Prayer and we'll, uh, we'll move out, okay?
Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, same place next week, same time. We'll see you then.